The question we should ask is, what did the people who are most close to Jesus do after his ascension to the Father? And the answer is, they went on mission. This is Nagasaki Harbor. It's in the southwest region of Japan. Now, most people know the name Nagasaki because in the Second World War, this was where the second atomic bomb was dropped, just about five kilometers north of where we're standing here. But Nagasaki was also important because it was the first port opened to foreign traders. Portuguese traders used this port in the 16th century, as did Jesuit missionaries. This was the center of their activities. You know, in Acts chapter one, verse eight, Jesus is recorded as saying that you'll be my witnesses to the very ends of the earth. And standing here in Nagasaki and thinking about where this is in relation to where Jesus stood when he said those words, this feels like the end of the earth. It might only be eight and a half thousand kilometers in a direct line from Jerusalem to here, but the arduous and dangerous sea journey was about 25 thousand kilometers. You know, with just two days notice, Francis Xavier boarded a ship to come here to tell people about the message of Jesus. You know, from the very beginning of the church, there have always been those who have taken the message of Jesus to the very ends of the earth for them. Be that Paul in the first century, or Francis Xavier in the 16th century and all the way up to today, people have always been committed to taking that message to the ends of the earth. But why did they do it? What was their motivation? Why would they face danger and difficulty in the midst of that task? This series, Jesus the Game Changer, is about the global reach of the message of Jesus. And that happened when people took the life and teaching of Jesus to the very ends of the earth. Well, welcome to week one of our series, our church-wide series, Jesus the Game Changer to the Ends of the Earth. That clip was a little introduction, a little taste of this week's episode and introducing for us the theme for week one of this series, our theme for tonight, which is making Jesus' last words our first priority. And I want to just let you know, I'm really excited about this series. I can't think of a better time than right now in the midst of the circumstances we find ourselves in in our world at the moment for us to be looking at the vision and mission of Jesus for our world. We know more than ever before, people are looking for hope. People are, are searching in the face of fear and uncertainty. They're looking for truth. They're looking to know where they can find security and peace in this life. And so we have an incredible opportunity. In fact, a better opportunity than we've had for generations to share the message of hope that is found in Jesus. And the other thing I wanna say up front too is that if you are still on the journey of faith, you are searching 
You've got questions about who is Jesus and about his, his influence in our world and what it means for your life. And this is a great series for you as well. Carl Fays, who's put this series together, he interviews academics, historians, um, people from all around the world, in fact, as he explores the claims of Jesus and the influence he's had on our world. And so I really want to encourage you, if that's you, this is a great series for you to be a part of and just to link in with us over these next few weeks as a part of all that's taking place for us here during this time. Well, tonight the topic is this theme, making Jesus' last words our first priority. And if you happen to catch Carl Faze's message this morning, he spoke about the fact of how important, how significant people's last words really are. And he gave the example of September 11, the attacks on the World Trade Centres in, in uh, New York in 2001. And the fact that many of those messages, those last messages, texts and phone recordings were captured. Hundreds, thousands in fact were recorded. And he shared a couple this morning. I want to share with you another couple of messages uh, from that same situation, September 11, 2001. This is what one person wrote, Alice Hogland's son Mark called her from United Airlines Flight 93, which was hijacked as it travelled from Newark, Newark to San Francisco. And Alice Hogan knew straight away, as soon as she heard her son's voice, that he was incredibly upset. And he said these words He said, Hi, Mum, this is Mark. We've been taken over. There are three men that say they have a bomb. I love you, I love you, I love you. They were the last words that this mum heard from her son. Daphne Bowers from Brooklyn said her daughter had gone to work at the World Trade Center on that particular day. And she said that the, her daughter called her uh, when the building was on fire. And she, she said, mommy, the building is on fire. There's smoke coming through the walls. I can't breathe. And the last thing she said was, I love you, mommy, goodbye. When we hear these accounts of people's last words, they stir something deep within us. We know that they are incredibly moving, they are incredibly significant. People's last words are a demonstration of their most deeply held convictions, what matters most to them. And so last words are incredibly significant. And we're really blessed that in the Bible, we're given an opportunity to hear Jesus' last words as well. Um, they're recorded for us in a number of places, in fact. And we're going to look at one of the accounts of Jesus' last words. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 1. And I want to read you this particular account of Jesus' last words here on earth. This is what he says in Acts chapter 1 from verse 6. It says, Then they gathered around him, around Jesus, and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he had said this, he was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. These are Jesus' last words. Some time ago, I read a quote from Bono, the lead singer of the band U2, and he said this in his book, On the Move. He said, a number of years ago, I met a wise man who changed my life in countless ways, large and small. I was seeking the Lord's blessing. I was saying, you know, I have a new song, look after it, or I have a family, please look after them, or I have this crazy idea. And this man said, stop. 
He said, stop asking God to bless what you are doing. Get involved with what God is doing because it's already blessed. Wise words, very wise words. And that is the invitation of Jesus' last words to each and every one of us. We have been called to live for something so much greater than ourselves. We were created to live for something so much greater than ourselves. And we have this incredible opportunity through Jesus' invitation of His last words to be a part of what God is doing in our world. And we can experience the incredible blessing of that, being in part of something of eternal significance. So Jesus tells His followers that they are to go, that they are to give testimony to what they have seen and heard, But He also gives them two crucial components to this. He promises to equip them for the journey with the gift of the Holy Spirit. And He shows them that this message is for everyone, that it's to go to the ends of the earth. It's for the whole world, in fact. And so tonight I wanna look at these final words of Jesus, but I wanna look at them through the lens of three commonly held questions that we wrestle with when it comes to telling others the good news of the the love of Christ and His saving power for us and for our world. And here are the three questions I wanna look at in the light of these words. The first question is this, often we worry, but I won't know what to say. That can be a big, big one for many of us. The second one is this, but I'm not a good enough Christian. I'm not spiritual enough. I'm not gifted enough to tell others. And the last one is this, but wouldn't, I'd be wrong. Wouldn't it be wrong of me to tell other people's, people what they should believe? That can be another big obstacle for us. And so I wanna look at these three questions in the light of Jesus' last words here in this passage. So the first question that often we wrestle with that holds us back is that I won't know what to say. We often worry about this. We think, well, I don't have enough theology. I don't know enough of the Bible. I'm not sure that I could explain the gospel clearly enough to somebody if, if I had the opportunity to do that. But what's interesting here in this passage is that Jesus doesn't tell His disciples to go to Bible college and study theology first and then go into all the world. Not that there's anything wrong with going to Bible college, but it's not a prerequisite here in any way. He doesn't say to get together a list of all the answers to the big questions of the Christian faith. And then when you have that list, then you can go into all the world. Again, not that there's anything wrong. It can be very helpful to have those answers, but it's not a prerequisite for, the, for this commission that Jesus is giving His followers. He doesn't even say to them, go and do a a course on evangelism first and then you can go and share with us. Then you can go into the world. What does He say? He says to them, you will be my witnesses is the term that He uses. And when we consider witnesses in a court of law, we understand that they are giving testimony to what they have seen, what they have heard. Witnesses are, are people They're not people who come with some advice around something. They're not people who come with some theory about something. Witnesses bring an account of a personal encounter that they have had themselves. And it's the same for us. Jesus is saying to us, I want you to be my witnesses. I want you to share your story of what I have done in your life. That's what Jesus says to us. I want you to do that. I want you to tell others about what you have seen and experienced for yourself. And this is one of the most powerful ways of bringing the kingdom of God to this world, His kingdom of light and love to this world and to see transformation in people's lives as they grab hold of this good news. 
I love the story uh, of the healing of the man born blind, which is recorded for us in John chapter nine. In this account, John gives one of Jesus' closest followers, they are walking along a road. Jesus is walking along a road with some of his followers and they come across this man born blind, begging on the side of the road. And the disciples, the followers of Jesus ask him, they say, Jesus, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his sin or the sin of his parents? And Jesus responds to them and says, not because of his sin and not because of the sin of his parents. It's neither of these. He says, the reason he was born blind was because he, this was gonna reveal the glory of God, the power of God. And then Jesus he actually, the Scriptures say that he spat on the ground, he got his saliva, he mixed it up and got some mud together and then he put it on this blind man's eyes. It's true, it's in the Bible. You should read your Bible. He put it on this man's eyes and then he told him to go to the pool of Siloam to wash there in the pool. And it says that when he returned from the pool that he was able to see and people could not believe what had happened. This man had been blind his whole life. They were amazed, they were in awe. But some people were not happy about this. The religious leaders at the time, they were not happy that Jesus had healed this man because it had taken place on the Sabbath, a holy day. And so what they do is, they religious leaders get this blind man, they bring them in before them and they ask him questions on a number of occasions. This is what it says, let me read it to you. It says, so for the second time, they, the religious leaders, called in the man who had been blind and told him, God should get the glory for this because we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. And I love how the man replies. He says these words. He says, I don't know whether he's a sinner, the man replied, but I know this. I was blind and now I can see. But what did he do? They asked, how did he heal you? Look, the man exclaimed, I told you once, didn't you listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become one of his disciples too? What a great response, classic response from this man. But you can see here that this blind man, he doesn't have all the answers. He doesn't have all the answers to their questions, but he just simply tells his story. He's a witness, he gives a testimony. And I want you to see tonight that if you have worried that you're not gonna have the words to say, that you're not sure you've been able to answer people's questions. Jesus says, don't let that overwhelm you. Don't let that stop you from being a part of His vision and mission for the world. Jesus says to you, just start by simply telling people your story of what I've done in your life. And your own story is incredibly powerful. And maybe you've never thought about how to tell your story before. Well, let me give you a quick help on how to do that. Real practical help here. Just to think of your own story in terms of three headings. The first heading, the first part of your story is what was your life like before you came to Jesus? And then the second part of your story is how did you come to Jesus? What took place that brought you to Jesus? What was that moment? And then the third part of your story is just how has your life changed since coming to know Jesus personally in your life? And you can put your own story together in just a, a couple of minutes. So if someone asks you, you can share with them in a minute or two minutes or longer if you have time what Jesus has done for you. But your story is incredibly powerful. I read a little while back about um, Charles Bradlaugh, which was who was a, a a brilliant atheist, gifted with a brilliant mind back in the 1800s in England. At the same time, there was a minister called Mr. Hugh Price Hughes who was ministering in the slums of London at the same time. And both of them were well known. Um, he, the atheist 
Charles Bradluff was well known because of his brilliant mind and his atheist beliefs. And Mr. Hughes was well known because of the impact his ministry was having in the slums of London. And on one occasion, Charles Bradluff, the atheist, challenged Mr. Hughes to a debate around the validity of the claims of the Christian faith. And everyone knew about this, everyone across London knew about this and they were really interested to hear what the response would be. And uh, Mr. Hughes immediately responded and said, yes, he would accept the challenge for that debate. But then he added one of his own challenges, Mr. Hughes did, to the um, proposal that was put forward. This is what he said. He said, I propose to you, uh, Mr. Bradloff, that we each bring some concrete evidences of the validity of our beliefs in the form of men and women who have been redeemed from the lives of sin and shame by the influence of our teaching. I will bring 100 such men and women and I challenge you to do the same. And if you cannot bring 100, Mr. Bradloff, to match my 100, I will be satisfied if you will bring 50 men and women who will stand and testify that they've been lifted up from lives of shame by the influence of your teachings. And then he said, if you cannot bring 50, then bring 20 people who will say as my 100 will, that they have a great joy in a life of self-respect as a result of your atheistic teachings. And if you cannot bring 20, I will be satisfied if you bring 10. In fact, he said, Mr. Bradloff, I challenge you to bring one. Just one man or woman who will make such a testimony regarding the uplifting of your atheistic teachings. And in answer, in response, Charles Bradloff, in great humiliation, publicly withdrew his challenge for the debate at that moment. A true story. But you know that historians and apologists and academics agree that the, one of the greatest evidences for the reality of the truth of the gospel, the reality of the truth of Jesus' resurrection is the billions of stories of lives right across the world of the transformation that has taken place in their life through understanding, comprehending this good news of the message of Jesus' love, His sacrifice on the cross for us, this message of grace and hope and forgiveness. And I want you to know that your testimony, your story is incredibly powerful. The second question uh, that often we wrestle with is this one, but I'm not a good enough Christian. I'm not spiritual enough. I'm not gifted enough to be used by God to tell others. This was, this was a big one for me for a long time. And I love this quote. This is what it says. It says, our assignment isn't to show others how good we are. Our assignment is to show others how good God is. I love that. It captures so well what our mission is. And the message of the gospel isn't that we are good people who have it all together. It's that we are sinners. The message of the gospel is that we are sinners in need of a saviour. And the message of the gospel is that Jesus lived the perfect life we could never live and He died the death that we deserved. And the message of the gospel is that it's not good people who go to heaven, it's forgiven people. That is the good news of the message that Jesus brought to our world. And so to say, well, I'm not a good enough Christian to share with others is in complete contrast to the message itself. So what does Jesus say to His followers? He doesn't say, go and work in your own strength and ability to tell others this good news. Now he tells them instead, he says to wait. Before he tells them to go, he actually says, wait. In Acts 1.4, he says, wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Why, why does he say this? 
because He knows. He knows that they cannot do this in their own strength. He knows that if they try to do this on their own, they are gonna fail. He knows that the vision, God's vision and mission for our world is far greater than the work of any man. It's ultimately a work of God. And I love the way Charles Spurgeon put it. He said, without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We are as ships without the wind, branches without sap and like coals without fire. We are useless. And that is so true. Jesus knew that. That's why He said, wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible tells us that salvation, it belongs to God. It is ultimately a work of the Holy Spirit that convicts people of sin, that reveals to them, opens their eyes, the eyes of their heart to understand God's great love for them and that God has a plan and a purpose for their lives. It's ultimately a work of the Holy Spirit who does that. And so Jesus says, you'll receive power for this task that I'm sending you out for when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And we know that the early followers of Jesus were far from an impressive bunch. If you know their stories, they had plenty of failings in their life. They were very ordinary people, just like you and me. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, the early leaders of the movement, Peter and John, were described as uneducated and ordinary men. Now, I don't know how they felt about that description, but I wanna tell you, I find that incredibly encouraging that Jesus isn't looking for super gifted people that have it all together. He is simply looking for ordinary people like you and me who are available, who are ready to respond to the, the prompting, the leading of the Holy Spirit, who are willing to step out in faith and who have a heart to be caught up in His plans and purposes for this world as the Spirit of God moves in and through us as His people. Recently, I received the following story from David Dixon, who leads our streetlight ministry here in our community that blesses homeless people and those in need. This is what he wrote. He wrote the following. He said, one of our streetlight family was in court earlier this week. She asked if I would attend with her to give her some support. I said, yes. And on Tuesday, I put my chaplain hat on and attended court in the city. As we arrived and spent about 20 minutes getting through security, we then ended up attending court at 9 a.m., There must have been over 80 people attending court that day. And as we waited for the court appointed lawyer to speak to us, I had an opportunity to speak to about three or four others about what they were there for. It was a really sad time hearing their stories. After we saw our court appointed lawyer to discuss her case, which took about an hour, we then started our four hour wait before heading into court. As we sat, We discussed how she was feeling and some of the thoughts that were going on in her head. And she was just about the only one who had some support there with her on this day. About 20 minutes before her appearance, she asked me, what was I carrying in my bag? And I advised I was carrying a Bible. And she asked me to pull it out, which I did. And she asked me, do I always carry it? And I said, yes. She then asked if I would open it randomly and if I picked a verse, would it speak to me? Would it speak to her? She has been to church growing up, but was not, but is not a believer. I wasn't sure what to say, David said. I, I, that hasn't really worked for me. But as I was praying in my head, I asked God to do just that. And she opened the Bible to Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11, which said these words. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting them favour in the presence of this man. 
And David says, I really couldn't believe what I just read to her. She asked what it meant as she had a brain injury and really struggles to comprehend stuff. So I explained it to her and she got really emotional as we prayed before we went in um, about the judge giving grace and favour and a favourable outcome. About 20 minutes later, David says, our prayers were answered as we walked out of court. She was totally in awe of what God had just done for her. How good is that? Isn't that incredible? And that's not a story on its own. I could tell you so many stories just like this, but I want you to see from this story, the Holy Spirit is at work in our world. He's at work in people's lives, bringing hope, revealing His love, bringing justice and healing to our world and to people's lives. And we have the opportunity to be part of what He is doing. We just need to be available, ready to step forward in faith and follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And there is nothing better in this world. I wanna tell you, you can ask David as well, there's nothing better in this world to be caught up in, in his kingdom plan, seeing blessing and life and hope and transformation come to people's lives. So here is the last question that often we, we wrestle with and it's this one. But wouldn't it be wrong for me to tell other people what they should believe? This is a big one for us, particularly in the culture in which we live. And the, the thinking goes something like this. Jesus' teachings, they work for me and for my life and my family, but who am I to tell my neighbour or my co-worker what he or she should believe? Or even more, who am I to go and tell people in other nations or from other cultures that their beliefs are wrong and my beliefs are right? How, how am I meant to do that? And even more than that, who am I to go and tell people that if they don't believe what I believe, they will experience eternal judgment in hell. This is a big one, isn't it? And I wanna tell you, I can identify with this train of thought. I have thought like this also. It feels arrogant. It feels unloving. It feels conceited. That is, unless the claims are true. Unless Jesus really did die for the sins of the world and rose again so that we could have new life and wholeness and healing in Him. Unless He really does transform lives and, and really is the hope of the world. Then if this is true, then telling other people the good news about Jesus is the most loving and caring and compassionate and kind thing we could ever do. And on the reverse of that, to not tell others would be the epitome of hatred and contempt and injustice and offence to others to do that. To date, 217,000 people have died from the coronavirus and that number continues to multiply daily. And the virus, as we know, has just devastated so many regions of our world and and. People, nations are scrambling to try and find a, a vaccine or a treatment for this virus as quickly as they can before even more devastation and more death occurs in our world. Imagine for a moment, what if tomorrow a nation in our world was to find a vaccine or a treatment for the coronavirus? Imagine if that was to take place. And we're praying that is the case. We're praying that there'll be a, a vaccine that'll come very quickly. But imagine if that took place tomorrow. But then imagine if that nation decided not to share that vaccine with the rest of the world. They decide just to keep it for themselves. Or imagine even further than that, if that nation decided only to keep it for just a few key people in their nation, 
rather than making it available to everyone. If that was to take place, then we would view that, the world would view that as a crime against humanity. Right? We would think of it as an unthinkable act of injustice for someone to do that. Well, it's the same is true if, around the good news of, of the message of Jesus' love and the hope found in Him. If we are to keep it to ourselves, it's exactly the same situation. Matthew Paris is a British journalist who writes for the London Times. He's also an atheist. And some years back, he travelled to Africa um, to look at the issues of poverty and violence and the corruption that have torn apart many parts of Africa, leading to horrific circumstances. If you know some of the story there, it's just heartbreaking to hear about what takes place there, the death, the hundreds and thousands of people displaced. And he went looking for answers to see if there was any hope in the midst of this situation. He visited towns and cities and villages and he witnessed firsthand the depths of the needs that are there. But he also saw that there have been millions of dollars of aid directed to Africa and many humanitarian efforts there. But despite all the money and despite all the help and goodwill, there is still so much need and the situation is still not improving. And Matthew Paris found himself asking the question, is there any hope? And on his return, Matthew wrote the following for the London Times. This is what he wrote. He says, as an atheist, I truly believe Africa needs God. Now a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good, he writes. He says, I used to avoid this truth by applauding, as you can, the practical work of mission churches in Africa. It's a pity, I would say, that salvation is part of the package. But Christians, black and white, working in Africa, do heal the sick, do teach people to read and write. And only the severest kind of secularist would see a mission hospital or a school and say the world would be better without it. I would allow that, he says, if faith was needed to motivate missionaries to help, then fine. But what counted was the help, not the faith. But he says, this doesn't fit the facts. Faith does more than support the missionary. It also is transferred to his flock. This is the effect that matters so immensely in which I cannot help observing. He says, it confounds my ideological beliefs stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. How powerful is that? An atheist says that the message of Jesus, the good news of the gospel changes people's hearts. It brings spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good, he says. Paris is saying here that the message of Jesus really is the hope of the world. And that is why Jesus says to his followers and to us, he says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on me, on you, and you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. He says, you cannot keep this message to yourself. This is for all people. And there are no social or cultural or geographical restrictions to the gospel. Not even a lockdown can restrict the message of the gospel going forward. 
And this is good news for all the world and we cannot keep it to ourselves. You know, I believe with all of my heart that the Holy Spirit is unfolding a mighty plan to reach many in this season that we find ourselves in right at the moment. We are seeing it in fact take place and I believe the Spirit of God is moving in great power and we don't wanna miss this opportunity. We don't wanna look back and regret not, not doing more, doing everything we could possibly do to share this message of hope, this message of hope for humanity in this season in which we find ourselves. And our prayer is that when we are able to gather back together again, that churches everywhere, including our own, will be full to overflowing with people who have come to faith in Christ in this time and people who are searching and are asking questions and wanna know more. That is our prayer for churches everywhere and for our church as well. And so I wanna encourage you tonight. I wanna encourage you to join with us as a church in partnering for God's kingdom plans and purposes for this community, for our city, for our nation and for our world. This is the best news in all the world. And Jesus has commissioned us as His followers to share our story, to know that we've been empowered, that we don't need to be limited in any way by our own thinking of ourselves, our own gifting. And we know that this message truly is for everyone. The best thing we can do is to share this message with others. And so more than ever, we wanna make Jesus' last words our first priority. And if you're listening tonight, and you're still on the journey of faith, you're still asking questions, who is Jesus? What does He mean for me? Could He really transform my, hope, my life? Could He really bring hope and peace to me? Well, I wanna encourage you to keep exploring, to keep asking those questions. Tonight, you could just pray and say, God, I want you to reveal yourself to me because it's true. He can bring hope and peace and meaning and purpose to your life as well. So let me pray as we close our time together. Heavenly Father, we wanna thank You Thank you for this truth that we have seen tonight. We thank you for your great love for this world. Thank you, Lord, for the billions of stories, Lord, across the ages and right now across our world, stories of lives transformed, stories of regions of our world being turned upside down, being blessed incredibly as they've found life in you. And so, Lord, I wanna pray that you'll help us as your people to take hold of this opportunity, to partner with you in your kingdom plans and purposes to share this good news or the best news in all the world. Lord, there's no greater cause to live for. So help us, Lord, to make your last words our first priority. And Lord, I wanna pray for any tonight who are listening and they're sensing you speaking to them for the first time, realising for the first time that you are the, the opportunity to experience hope and peace and life through your death on the cross for us, through your saving power for us. If there's any like that, Lord, I pray you'll prompt them just to respond to you tonight as well. And we ask this in Jesus' Name, Amen. We're gonna respond and sing a song of worship that speaks that all of Jesus has done for us. If tonight you do wanna respond to Jesus for the first time, make sure you click that button in your link there that says respond to Jesus, whatever platform you're linking in. And we'd love to help you on your journey and share with you more as well. But why don't we share together in worship now as we give thanks for all that He's done for us and respond to His Word to us tonight. Let's worship together. Father, we thank You so much uh, for what You've said to us through Your Word, great God. And I, uh, some people may have just been impacted from what they've heard tonight. And so we just thank You for uh, the way in which You speak to us, great God. Uh, we love You. We thank You in Jesus' Name. Amen.
Well, thanks so much for joining us online. It's been so good to have you here with us. If you were impacted in some way or another, or even if you just want to find out a little bit more, we'd love to get in contact with you. You can email through to hello at bridgman.org.au. Or if tonight you were impacted and you responded uh, to Jesus, uh, you can click the link on bridgman.live, respond to Jesus there or on Facebook. Uh, Otherwise, feel free to email to us and we'd love to get some information out to you. But it's been so good to have you here with us. Feel free to tune in next Sunday and we'll see you then. Thanks for joining with us for our service today. If you sense God speaking to you or you'd like to find out more, we want to help and encourage you on your journey of faith. You can reach out to us via our website or email hello at bridgman.org.au. And don't forget, if you have a prayer need, we'd love to pray for you. And you can fill in a prayer card on our website or email prayer at bridgman.org.au. I'm praying God's blessing for you this week and we look forward to connecting with you again soon.